Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome to New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at EPFL in Switzerland, and I will be your host today. Today, we'll be talking to Alison Richard about the new book, The Sloth Lemur Song, The History of Madagascar's Evolutions from, from the Deep Past to Uncertain Present. A moving account of Madagascar told by a researcher who has spent over 50 years investigating the mysteries of this remarkable island. Weaving together scientific evidence with Richard's own experiences and exploring the power of stories to shape our understanding of events, this book captures the magic as well as tensions that swirl around this island nation. Well, Alison, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So how are you? How was your week? Busy, <laughs> busy, but it's uh, it's been a glorious week of weather. Uh, I just got back from the UK to Connecticut, so uh, I'm still sort of catching up on jet lag and I'm about to leave for Belize. Anyway, never a dull moment. I, I often find myself saying, if this is retirement, just give me a job. Life would be simpler with a job. Uh, but anyway, it's interesting. So can you tell us what do you do? Uh, where to begin? Um, so, so just sort of a brief, a kind of a brief account of my life. I, I uh, grew up in the UK. I was born in Kent and raised there and went to school there and was an undergraduate at Cambridge University and did my PhD at London University and then was uh, offered a job at Yale University in the United States. And in the feckless way of the young, I just sort of upped and offed in 1972, sort of not imagining that this would become my second home. Uh, anyway, I was uh, an assistant professor in the anthropology department at Yale and made my way up and became head of the department and then director of the Yale Peabody Museum and then provost. And then in 2003, just when I was thinking of getting my life back again, uh, I was asked to become vice chancellor of Cambridge University. And after much thought said yes. And my husband and I 
uh, took off again for the UK and spent seven years at Cambridge. And then we returned to the States in 2010 um, to sort of resume life here. But my husband died in 2013. This, this was not the plan, but you don't get to choose the plan. Uh, and so I've been sort of, you know, putting my life back together since then and uh, engaged uh, mostly on environmental fronts uh, in a variety of ways and also with the writing of this book um, and sort of turning to the book and the threads that have gone into that. Uh, there are really three threads as I think back on it. And the first was, uh, is my research. I did my PhD on uh, Propithecus baroxi, uh, the Sipaka, the big white lemur of Madagascar. Uh, and I was drawn to that because uh, a, a good way of understanding the rules that the evolutionary rules underlying social organization are to study rule breakers. And Madagascar is full of rule breakers. And uh, in, in my case, what particularly interested me was that among most primates, monkeys and apes, I leave you to decide about humans, uh, males are larger than and socially dominant to females. But uh, in most, not all, but most of the lemurs of Madagascar, including the animals I studied, females are the same size as males and they are socially uh, dominant to males. And so, you know, a question that sort of long interested me, though my interests have, have actually sort of moved on since then, is, you know, how are we to understand that? What, 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 what evolutionary forces drove that uh, configuration of social relationships between males and females? So, so my focused research on lemurs has uh, is clearly sort of a piece of what this book is about. But uh, a second piece is that uh, you know, I was doing my PhD work in 1970-71, long ago. But even then, even then, uh, there was clearly a major environmental challenge facing Madagascar. Forests were disappearing. And it seemed to me that one could not, in good conscience, simply do research on animals uh, and not roll up one's sleeves and try to help. Uh, to ensure that there is a future for both people and animals uh, in Madagascar uh, in times to come. And that got me involved with colleagues at the University of Antananarivo and a community, uh, a village community in southwest Madagascar. And so since 1975, I've been deeply involved in uh, grassroots, community-led uh, conservation efforts, uh, which look to ensure the future of the forests and the wildlife down in this area in the southwest, and the well-being, the increasing well-being of uh, the people who live uh, in that environment. So, sort of that 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 conservation sort of piece of my life is a second thread of this book, and then the third uh, is my late husband. He was an archaeologist who did his PhD on uh, early human settlement and its impact in Taiwan. Uh, but he decided to shift focus and he moved his research to Madagascar and to the human settlement of Madagascar and, 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 and how that played out. Uh, and uh, he 
opened my, uh, he broadened my thinking and opened my horizons, uh, both historically and just in terms of what I thought about. So, uh, and in fact, this book, we originally planned to write this book together. And after he died, I sort of gave up thinking about it for a couple of years and then decided that there was a book that I could write, uh, which wouldn't be the same, but which would have sort of many of the same themes. Anyway, it meant that I had to do an enormous amount of work uh, because there was a division of labor in the household. And I then had to learn in some depth all that he controlled in terms of paleoecology and archeology span and so on and so forth. So it has been a long journey uh, to, to, to get to the book that came out this spring. Uh, not least, not least, I've always written for academic audiences whose interest one could assume. Uh, but this book is uh, for general readers uh, and so whose interest you can't assume. And that's a very different way of thinking about writing and uh, learning the, the craft of writing well uh, for a broad audience has been a part of the, the challenge, but also the intense interest to me of writing this book beyond the subject matter itself, about which, of course, I'm passionately interested. Yeah, and we're very glad that you wrote this book. <laughs> it's really, it's really amazing. So I was wondering, because you're a researcher, you're a scientist, and you do a lot of work in the field. So what draws you to working with the communities and being on the spot, basically? So, um, the, I mean, it just, it, as going back to sort of my earlier uh, comment, um, well, first of all, I don't, I don't think of myself certainly as a primatologist. And in fact, at this point, I don't think of myself as a biological anthropologist. I think of myself as where I began, which is as an anthropologist. An anthropologist uh, encompass you know, being an anthropologist encompasses just about everything is the reality. And seeing the urgency of the challenge, the idea that conservation can work just by putting boundaries around protected areas uh, and ignoring the lives of the people who depended for their livelihoods on those protected areas. Apart from the ethical questions, it's just not gonna work as a practical matter. Uh, one has to, uh, I believe deeply, enlist uh, the support uh, and engagement of uh, people who live in these uh, precious places around the world. And so, uh, you know, that, that led me to become very involved uh, with people in that community. And, and in a very real sense, they've become you know, friends and neighbors. You know, we've, they took a lot, you know, it's been 50 years. And, uh, uh, you know, the, the mayor of the commune in Southwest Madagascar, where I work, is now the grandson of the mayor, the young mayor with whom uh, I was working in 1975. So it's been a long effort and it takes a lot of time to build up trust uh, because one, I like, I, from the outset, we thought of it as a partnership, but actually there's a huge asymmetry between uh, we from the University of Antananarivo and the foreign researchers involved. You know, we were sort of highly educated, quote unquote, rich uh, with access to power, 
And here you are with a community with high levels of uh, illiteracy and no access to power. And so sort of establishing trust uh, on both sides and, and a real working relationship. You can't do that overnight. So uh, it's taken a long time, but, uh, but it really works well now. It's, uh, you know, as, as, my, as I say in a chapter of my book, the rolled up headlines about Madagascar are quite disastrous and depressing. And, and of course, there is, there is truth to that. I mean, you know, I, one doesn't, I don't deny that. But if you look underneath those headlines, there are places on the ground uh, where things work well. And, uh, you know, where I'm working in the Southwest uh, with this community, things are going well there. And there are many other examples in Madagascar of, of, of local grassroots activities uh, where nature and people are managing, are finding ways to live well together. Uh, the great challenge is how do we scale them up or scale them out? Uh, and, uh, you know, that it doesn't solve everything. I mean, we know about global climate change. I mean, there is, there is a need for action at every level, but the action cannot only be at very high levels. It must also, I believe, be on the ground and that's what I've committed myself to. Uh, the, you know, the truth is, it's easy to despair uh, you know, about the state of the world in all kinds of ways. But uh, I, uh, we, what I say to myself and say to others is, we don't know enough to know that it's hopeless, and therefore we have to keep working at it. And that's that's what I do. And maybe fifty years from now, all of these efforts will turn out to have been a waste of time, but I will be long dead by then and won't know about it. And uh, I just feel that uh, there is a, 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 a moral duty, but also uh, sort of a passionate interest uh, and enjoyment and satisfaction in, uh, in doing what I do. Um, so what would you say to our student listeners and early career researchers? I would just say uh, the meaning of hope. It's the epigraph of my book. Hope is the conviction that uh, there is something worth working for. So go for it. And uh, and I'm and I'm you know it, one of the things that makes me really happy is that uh, 50 years ago uh, most of the young researchers were students from uh, the the global north and west doing PhDs and going on to academic careers or careers in, in, in the environmental arena. Uh, and that's essential and important and wonderful. But there were very few young Malagasy. Uh, the Madagascar had recently emerged from uh, uh, 60 years of, uh, as a colony uh, of France. And during that time, very few young Malagasy uh, were trained as scientists and leaders of research and environmental action. That has been transformed. I was at a, a conference of the International Primatological Society uh, in Madagascar, held in Madagascar, which is wonderful. It was the annual meeting. And uh, I looked around the room and I, I knew sort of the older Malagasy scientists, the, the few of them that there are, I know them well, they're old friends and colleagues. 
I knew a few of the young Malagasy scientists, but many of them I didn't know, and there were lots of them, and that is great. And more and more of the research that is being done tonight, today, and, and it is research that is essential for action. It underpins policy and action. More and more of that is being done by, by, by Malagasy. So uh, that in itself is a, is a really good thing. And in fact, my, my primary collaborator in Madagascar, I met him as a student uh, in a field school that I used to teach in Madagascar in the 80s. And he was an outstanding student. And so uh, we found a way to bring him to the University of Connecticut to do a master's degree. And he was an outstanding master's student. And so he went on to do a PhD at the University of Connecticut, returned to Madagascar, and, uh, and is now a leader, an academic leader, but also an environmental leader in Madagascar in his 50s or maybe even 60, I don't know. But anyway, there is, uh, so, so I, you know, as I say, I, you know, I think there, there, are, there are grounds for despair, but there are also grounds to believe that uh, uh, despair is not appropriate. And besides, despair is not an option, as far as I'm concerned. It's great to hear. <laughs> okay, so let's dive into some of the nitty gritties of your book. And yes. can we start with the very basics? So could you give us the profile of Madagascar? Well, Madagascar is, uh, it floats in the uh, West Indian Ocean, 400 kilometers or so off the east coast of Africa. Uh, there is a wonderful article by John DeWitt entitled, uh, Heads, It's a Continent, Tails, It's an Island. Uh, and, and, and that actually speaks to the fact that although it is an island, uh, it is in fact like a small continent. Its topography is complex. Uh, there is a, a mountain chain that runs along the eastern side length of the island and uh, the trade winds blow in off the Indian Ocean and that creates rainforest in the east and then uh, an ecological and rainfall gradient that slopes off toward the west and uh, which ends up with you know, a desert forest essentially in the, in the south of the island. So there is a, a huge diversity of environments uh, on the island and, uh, and that makes it continent-like in, in its diversity. So, uh, and it's about a thousand miles long and 350 miles uh, at, at, at its widest point. Uh, the Tropic of Capricorn, today runs uh, through the, the southern tip of the island. So most of the island is within the tropics. And then there's just a small piece that is uh, south of the tropics as, as defined by the Tropic of Cap Capricorn. Uh, the population, the human population of the island is, uh, is it continues to grow rapidly. When I began uh, my research in uh, uh, 1970, the, the population was about 10 million. It's now up to uh, 22 million, 25 million and counting. So there has been a rapid population expansion. But still, if you look at the, the, the land area, the population density is actually not that high. Uh, so it's not a crowded island um, still today. I, I, I don't know what, how much, I mean, the, the, the there's a lot more to say about the sort of the peopling of Madagascar, but maybe that comes later in this conversation. 
So how was it formed initially? Well, go back 250 million years, which I do in uh, chapter two. And Madagascar was just a sort of an anonymous, inconsequential wedge of land in the middle of Gondwana, with sort of uh, attached to uh, Africa on the left and India on the right and Australia and uh, Antarctica somewhere at the bottom and uh, and pieces of, of, of Northern Africa and Eurasia at the top. Uh, and it drifted south through time. There was a point at which Gondwana and Madagascar were over the South Pole. Uh, But about 125 million years ago, Gondwana began to break up. And the first thing that happened was that the Mozambique Channel, which separates Madagascar from Africa, opened up. Africa began drifting off uh, to the west. Uh, And that is a very deep channel. And then by 88 million years ago, uh, India started drifting off to the Northeast for its great collision uh, with Eurasia, which raised the, uh, the, the Himalayas. Uh, and so by that point, uh, when the, the, the date of separation for Australia and Antarctica from Madagascar is still not well settled, but there's general consensus that by 88 million years ago, Madagascar was entirely surrounded by water far south of where it is today. Uh, And from 65 million years ago or so, uh, Madagascar in parallel with Africa began drifting north. And for 30, 40 million years, Madagascar slowly made its way northward Uh, to reach its current position somewhere between 8 and 15 million years ago. Um, As an interesting footnote, when Alfred uh, Wegener was arguing the case for the reality of uh, continental drift and for what we now call plate tectonics, there were two places in the world where he estimated the rate of movement uh, of continents and one of them was Greenland, and the other was Madagascar. Nobody, nobody, it's an unsung starring role for Madagascar in the history of plate tectonics. Anyway, his estimate of the speed at which Madagascar was moving was way off. If Madagascar actually moved as fast as Wagner said, it would be on the other side of the world by now. And he did, in fact, in his last treatise in 1929, he quite cheerfully said, well, I may be off on the precise estimates, but I've got the general direction right. So, uh, so, so sort of a major theme of uh, my book is of Madagascar as a place of change. Uh, it is not that the, the, the prevailing wisdom is of this sort of timeless tropical paradise covered with forest until people arrived and then they cut down or burned down the forest and slaughtered all the animals. Uh, so it's it sort of it's it's a it's 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 a it's a story of no change followed by disaster. And uh, a major theme and thread in my book is to say, no, 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 Madagascar has always been a place of change and quite literally of movement, movement across the face of the globe, but also movement in the sense of tectonic activity, which uplifted the, the, the mountain chain that we see today, uh, which plunged part of the island under the sea for long periods of time. The Southwest was 
covered by the sea uh, 65 million years ago. Uh, so, uh, so, so, you know, and as it moved across the globe, uh, the climate changed and the sea currents and the directionality of the sea currents changed. And all of that had implications for the vegetation cover of the island and for the animals that could reach the island uh, and live there. So, uh, so that's that's sort of you know a, 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 I, I should I should sort of back up a little and say when I set out to write this book, I set out primarily to debunk this notion of Madagascar as a timeless place destroyed by the arrival of the Malagasy people, um, which is based on flawed and incomplete evidence at best and, uh, and plain wrong evidence at worst. Uh, and yet it is still the prevailing story because it's a powerful story. It's the story of Paradise Lost, uh, which has been part of Western history for 3000 years. Um, so, that, so I set out to debunk that story but uh, as I went along, uh, I became uh, sort, of, sort of entranced by, captivated by, seduced by, I'm not sure what the word is, just by sort of the magic of this uh, complex and uh, rich history. And so the book sort of shifted toward becoming uh, uh, you know, a, a, an account of that history. But... Uh, but within a context of uh, the power of storytelling and stories to shape the way we see the world, to shape the kinds of evidence we look for, and to shape the way that we interpret evidence. And you know, as a scientist, all of that interests me greatly, that empirical evidence is essential, of course, uh, but uh, it isn't quite as absolute as... Uh, uh, as one would like to think. And uh, this, this book has really brought that home to me. If you don't look for evidence for the existence of grasslands, it's very easy to just assume that there were none. But uh, once you start looking for the evidence, as the uh, botanists from, uh, well, from the Missouri Botanical Gardens in particular, also from Kew in the UK, as they have shown, uh, you know, there is ample evidence of grasslands, C4 grasslands, uh, stretching back, uh, you know, between four and seven million years ago. So, uh, you know, it depends what you look for, depends how you interpret what you see and, uh, and how you view the world, for that matter. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com 
slash NBN50 to get 50% off. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. So before we go to humans, can we just discuss a bit what kind of plants and animals were there in Madagascar? Were there any dinosaurs at all? Oh, indeed, indeed. So, uh, so, so going back to Gondwana time, the first fossil deposits are something uh, which have been found uh, in the west of the island uh, by Luva Shua and uh, John Flynn and their team. And uh, they are a very, very strange creatures. They are not yet dinosaurs, early reptiles, pre-pre-mammals, uh, a landscape of creatures unlike any alive today, early Gondwana fauna. Then you fast forward to 68 million years ago and uh, David Krauss and his colleagues have found very rich fossil deposits in the northwest of the island. And what a world that was. There were vegetarian crocodiles, there were giant uh, predatory frogs, <laughs> it's called uh, Beelzebufo madagascariensis, is the uh, giant predatory frog, otherwise known as the frog from hell. And uh, seven species of dinosaurs, some of them flying. There were experiments in being birds, though none of their descendants are alive today. It was a, uh, a rich and remarkable fauna. Dr. Seuss couldn't have made it up. I mean, it was just sort of bizarre and amazing. Um, but then 66 million years ago, when the asteroid hit in the Gulf of Mexico and destroyed 75% or so of land animals globally, uh, as best we can tell, everything in Madagascar was wiped out uh, in what ensued, with two exceptions. Uh, there are two groups of animals alive today whose uh, ancestors trace back before that uh, uh, boundary 66 million years ago. Uh, one uh, is the, are blind snakes, and the other are iguanas. Um, there is a question mark over boas, boa snakes. You know, the, the molecular dating is not good enough, uh, isn't, the, the resolution isn't good enough to be sure about that. But basically, everything that is alive in Madagascar today, according to the molecular evidence, uh, arrived on the island, settled the island, after, you know, when it was surrounded by deep water, uh, I keep saying the molecular evidence because uh, in a quirk of geological history, uh, there are no fossil deposits uh, from 66 million years ago until uh, about 120,000 years ago at the maximum when uh, uh, researchers have been finding subfossils, incompletely fossilized remains. So everything we know about uh, the period when the wildlife that we see today evolved comes from reverse engineering using molecular techniques 
from uh, uh, wildlife alive today. That means that anything that arrived on the island but didn't survive to the present leaves no trace at all. So it's a very incomplete story. And there are paleontologists who are out there today looking for these uh, still elusive uh, exposed strata of fossil bearing rocks that would start to provide a record of, that, uh, of those tens of millions of years when for now uh, the record is, is, is silent. So that so that, so so you know, so it, it it was a parade of animals, a parade of animals, and we we can talk about the animals that made it over and how they made it over uh, to give rise to the wildlife we see today. But a bit about the vegetation first. Well, you know, when Madagascar was over the South Pole, it would have been a place of whites and greys with not much vegetation at all. Uh, and when the pollen record begins. The earliest pollen samples are something over 200 million years ago. And then it would have been a, uh, a humid uh, sub subtropical forest <coughs> with the likes of ginkgo trees, uh, <coughs> gymnosperms, in fact, this, this is pre-angiosperm, pre-flowering plants. So there is that glimpse of uh, a long ago forested environment that translates today into extensive coal deposits in southwest Madagascar. That all went uh, in one of the sort of periodic huge waves of extinction that have, uh, have, 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 have you know, sort of resonated globally. Um, moving sort of, I mean, I, I don't know how long we want to talk about this, but moving closer to the present, uh, as Madagascar, I said to you that Madagascar 65 million years ago was far south of where it is today. Um, as it moved north, it entered uh, and was completely engulfed by the arid belt that circles the globe around 30 degrees south, around the Tropic of Capricorn, and it is wide enough, uh, deep enough, that Madagascar was completely inside that uh, arid belt for tens of millions of years uh, as it slowly moved north. During that time, the environment would have been very harsh, very dry, uh, extremes of heat and cold, and it would have been, and it, you know, the, again, the molecular evidence suggests it that the, the plant life then uh, was this endemic, uh, dominated by an endemic family of cactus-like plants, but they're not cactuses, called the Didieriaceae, uh, which have spines and, uh, and are drought resistant. We know there must have been pockets of more humid uh, forest sort of in sort of crevices and protected areas on the island because there are you know, uh, lizards that have survived to today that would not have tolerated the dry conditions that were prevailed at those times. But Madagascar emerged from that belt and was well largely north of the Tropic of Capricorn by about 30 million years ago. And then one starts to see, you know, the spread of uh, of the vegetation that we that we a vegetation that would look far more like what we see today. 
with mainly dominated by angiosperms, lots of endemicity, uh, and by this uh, this dry these dry uh, tolerant drought tolerant plants uh, and formations in the south. You know, call it bush, call it spiny forest. Uh, so uh, again, it's uh, it's a history of of change and diversity, whether you look at animals or at plants. And uh, for the grasslands, uh, quite remarkably, uh, what the uh, the Q uh, and others working on this uh, researchers have found is that uh, the molecular clocks suggest that uh, uh, the endemic grasses of Madagascar go back four to seven million years. Uh, which exactly coincides with the time of the spread of C4 grasses globally. Uh, so grasslands of some description were opening up in Madagascar around that time. Interestingly, the diversity of endemic species of grasses, C4 grasses in Madagascar, is as high as that in the uh, grasslands of Tanzania. This is, this is not what people think but this is what they have uh, discovered. What did those grasslands look like? Uh, the, the, sort of the current sort of model proposed by Steve Goodman is that they would have looked like Miumbo woodlands, which characterize places in Eastern Southern Africa with a fair scattering of tree cover with grasses underneath uh, the trees. Now, my, my own sort of argument is that uh, they wouldn't have looked like just one thing. Uh, grasslands uh, change quite rapidly through time. And Eddie Eckblom has done amazing research on the transformations within a century or two in Southern Africa of grasslands into quite wooded environments and then back to grasslands again, depending on microclimate changes, fire regimes, and the particular and the interaction of those effects with the grazing and browsing community. Uh, and uh, so I sort of would imagine, I, you know, my picture, I mean, there is so much more research to be done. <laughs> this is, you know, my book is partly sort of, a, an, you know, a, 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 a call to sort of keep working and keep doing more to discover more of this history. But uh, I would envisage uh, a landscape where forests uh, receded and expanded uh, depending on environmental conditions. And uh, the, there are pollen cores, uh, uh, sediment cores, I should say, from the Central Highlands. This is the work of uh, two uh, French women, Gas and Von Campo, and of David Burney, uh, who've taken long cores from lakes in the Central Highlands, uh, dating back 150,000 years in one case, but most of them date back 12,000 years. They're Holocene, essentially a, a record of what was going on in the Central Highlands uh, over the last 12,000 years. Wow, I mean, it was it, 12,000 years ago, the Central Highlands were a, a, coming out of the last glacial episode, were a, a chilly heathland. And then the heaths are slowly replaced by grasses. And then the grasses start to, the grass pollen rain starts to show evidence of trees and there's more trees. And then there's a cold snap and the trees recede and the grasses expand again. It is just sort of, and then there are charcoal lenses of, uh, uh, in these sediments with uh, dense charcoal 
signaling uh, a frequency of natural fire. So uh, one can sort of envisage for the Central Highlands where the record is most complete for just the last 12,000 years, a very dynamic environment, a very dynamic environment. So then coming to humans, how did they first arrive to the island and how did they impact the landscape and uh, the local uh, flora and fauna? Well, the, the, the first evidence, and it is a faint trace and it is contested, uh, is, comes from cut marks uh, on two bones of uh, giant elephant birds. Uh, the dating of those bones is 10,000 years uh, old. They're 10,000 years old. The dating, I think, is, is there's, there's, not, there's, there's no question about that. Uh, whether the cut marks are made by, uh, you know, crocodile teeth or human stone tools uh, is contested. Um, you know, knowing the people who've done the research, I'm, I'm put my hand up and say, you know, this is evidence that this is a faint trace of people in Madagascar. It's the only trace that we have that goes back 10,000 years. There are a few more bones that date back 6,000 years, again, with cut marks on them. But the first uncontestable uh, evidence of humans actually living on the island with an archeological site uh, was discovered, in fact, by my husband, Robert Dealer, and his colleagues uh, in, in Madagascar. And uh, that is a rock shelter uh, up on the northern tip of the island. Uh, and that dates to 4,000 years ago. There were people living there um, bringing quartz. It, it has a little uh, microliths, tiny stone tools that they found there uh, made from quartz that they brought from maybe as far away as 120 kilometers away. Uh, there uh, is evidence of, uh, uh, of animal bones uh, and in fact of two burned maxilla, the upper jaw of, uh, uh, of an extinct lemur. It's the only evidence in any human settlement site of people eating extinct lemurs. Quite remarkable. So anyway, so that's 4,000 years ago. Then uh, 2,000 years ago on the West Coast, uh, there's evidence of a little fishing camp there and, a, and again, another sort of occupied rock shelter. But the, the, the settlement becomes sort of more intense only, in the seventh, only from the seventh century in the common era. And at that point, you start to see small hamlets and villages uh, all the way around the coast. Uh, by the 12th century, but not until the 12th century, there is evidence of people in the central highlands. And between the 12th and the 14th century, there is the evidence of the first, what you would call a, a, a major town or city uh, in the, on the northwest coast, which was undoubtedly a port for export and import. So, so that, in a nutshell, is sort of the, 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 the evidence of, uh, of, of human footprints on the land. Who were these people? Well, the earliest people to arrive were almost certainly people coming in small boats uh, from the east coast of Africa, probably Bantu, maybe pre-Bantu, again, that's argued about, but probably Bantu speakers. 
Um, whether they got to Madagascar on purpose or were blown there by accident, who knows? The Mozambique Channel is a treacherous channel and sailing a treacherous, treacherous currents. The currents run fast south, directly south down the channel. And so getting across it in a small boat with a sail would have been uh, a dangerous and uncertain undertaking. Um, and so, you know, there's a sense in which Madagascar can, can be said to be sort of hidden in plain sight because 400 kilometers is not very much, not very far. However, given the ocean currents, uh, it's a very long way to make your way. But, but by the seventh century, uh, people were coming from a quite different, different place. They were coming from Southeast Asia. How did they come? Well, the Indian Ocean was the center of a trading network for thousands of years. In fact, it was, if you, if you will, it was kind of the center of the world for thousands of, the, of years because the Atlantic Ocean has winds that only blow in one direction. Uh, they blow east across the Atlantic. So if you want to go back and forth, it's difficult and nobody figured out how to do that until the 15th century. And then, uh, and then the Atlantic Ocean became a major sort of, you know, the, the lands around the Atlantic Ocean were joined in a major trading center. But until then, the Indian Ocean was where the action was. And there were traders going around the rim of the Indian Ocean all the way from Southeast Asia, you know, through Southern China, around, you know, the tip of India, down the east coast of Africa, past Arabia, and eventually all the way to Madagascar. Um, and presumably, presumably, some traders came and stayed. Maybe some traders brought emigres from Southeast Asia who stayed. But it is also highly likely that somewhere in the seventh or eighth century, people began coming directly across the Indian Ocean from Southeast Asia in bigger boats uh, carried by the, uh, uh, the equatorial current that flows from east to west across the Indian Ocean. That journey uh, was memorably uh, undertaken uh, in the 1980s to see if it was possible by a group of mad Englishmen and Frenchmen who set sail on a boat built along the same lines as boats would have been built in the seventh century. And sort of, you know, they navigated by the stars and they didn't have a single nail in this boat. It was all lashed together. They sailed all the way across the Indian Ocean successfully. They got within sight of Madagascar and then uh, the winds blew them north and they ended up sort of very sort of unceremoniously in the Comoro Islands and had to be towed to Madagascar by the French Navy. Anyway, it was an ignominious end, but they arrived in triumph in Madagascar. But they proved that it was, you know, A, possible in principle and B, very difficult in practice. But, but clearly, either directly across the Indian Ocean or around the Indian Ocean, people came in large numbers because the genetic makeup of the Malagasy people today is 60% of African descent and 40% of Indonesian uh, descent. So there is a, a, a major Indonesian component to the makeup 
of sort of the biology of, of people there today. And, and interestingly, um, women living in Madagascar today show a greater uh, presence. The, 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 the Indonesian sort of influence is more evident in women than it is in men, which suggests that who was coming was different, that it was families, men and women, who sailed to Madagascar to create a new life. Perhaps, you know, I think of them as the first boat people, you know, fleeing uh, a very vicious and brutal empire that was being established in uh, Malaya and Indonesia in the seventh century. And, you know, they were looking for somewhere safe, maybe. Um, so, and, but coming from Africa, it would have been more just men coming. So, so there's that, but, uh, and, and if you look at the material culture and, uh, and just the cultural ways uh, in Madagascar today, it's an, it, it is a remarkable fusing of African and Indonesian culture. But uh, one last piece on this uh, that, is, that is truly sort of, you know, it, it just kind of wonderful to me is that the Malagasy language is, uh, and there is only one, there are a, a number of dialects, but they're all more or less mutually comprehensible. It's a single language on a very big island and its closest relative is a language called Manyan. Manyan is spoken by people who live way upstream on a river in the center of Borneo, with no seafaring history at all that anybody knows of. So you know, how, how, did, how did a language spoken in the interior of Borneo come to be uh, the language of an, the, an entire island 7,000 miles across uh, the Indian Ocean? It's one of the great sort of mysteries uh, of, uh, and geographical sort of miracles of, of the world. Um, that, you know, what is the answer to that question? Who knows? I mean, my, my, my own view is that uh, trading has, uh, you know, if Madagascar was established sort of as the, at, at the end of the trading routes, uh, the Indian Ocean trading routes, it was a, a, a trading, it was a place to come to trade. It was a place to take, what did it take? It took the, the purest, best ports in the world, uh, up the east coast of Africa. So it exported quartz, it exported soapstone, it has wonderful soapstone. It exported uh, uh, silver and gold and other minerals and, uh, and, and who knows what else beside. In reverse, uh, in my husband's, uh, uh, in this little rock shelter up uh, on the far northern tip, by the 10th century, there is Chinese porcelain appearing in this rock shelter. It's just, just sort of extraordinary. But if it's a trading place, if people, and if you're gonna trade, it means you've got to go to markets and trade your goods to other people. And eventually those trade goods make their way to a port and are exported. If you're going to do business and trade, you need a language in common because you have to be able to agree a price and bargain. And my guess is that the Malagasy language somehow, you know, in one of those kind of happenstances and contingencies of history, that the Malagasy language was initially sort of a lingua franca by which people uh, sort of, you know, bartered 
uh, in marketplaces and from there became the language of the island. We know that there were still a few Bantu, Bantu speakers uh, within historic times, but by the 18th century, the Malagasy language was the language of, uh, of the island uh, and a very beautiful language it is. Um, in another sort of interesting and sort of curious footnote, it wasn't written, that, well, Arabs wrote down the Malagasy language uh, in the 14th century in Arabic script, um, but it didn't, that didn't become widespread. Uh, it was eventually turned into a written language by missionaries from the London Missionary Society who came in the 18th century and they wanted to make the language a written language so that they could translate the Bible and hand out the Bible to people. And the Malagasy Queen, and they asked permission to do this, uh, the Malagasy Queen at the time, Queen Ranu Valana, and she said yes, on condition that you use French vowels and English consonants to do this. <laughs> so, so you can speak Malagasy if you know how to pronounce French vowels and, uh, and, and English consonants. It was, it was a, another, sort of, another sort of small intervention in Madagascar's very success, the, the state of Madagascar's very successful efforts to uh, play off the British and French uh, imperialists against one another, which they did successfully for 200 years until the French and the British went behind the backs of the Malagasy uh, in the late 19th century and agreed that France would get Madagascar and the British would get Mauritius in a kind of dirty deal. And so France colonized Madagascar at the end of the 19th century. I'm looking at the time and in all of this, we have I've not said much or anything about the, the history of the wildlife that we see today and the animals that have recently gone extinct, but that, that maybe we've talked long enough and maybe that's a reason, sorry, it's all in the book, it's all in the book. Exactly, our <laughs> listeners will find out uh, in the book, but I've got a question about the future of Madagascar and how the climate change is impacting it. Well, uh, you know, as, as we know from the Glasgow conference, Madagascar was held up as a kind of poster child for the catastrophe of, uh, of climate change and global warming uh, because of the drought, the extreme drought in the South over the last few years, uh, three years, there's now been extreme drought. But, but you know, you, you have to sort of temper what you have, of, of, well, the, the, the predictions, uh, the, the, the simulation models uh, looking forward all suggest uh, and converge on uh, downloading from uh, you know, global data. They all indicate that Southern Madagascar is going to get hotter and drier uh, for the Central Highlands, uh, you know, not, nece you know not, not, ne not necessarily so, but for the South, certainly, yes. Uh, that is incontestable, um, I think. However, uh, just in the 50 years that I've been working in southern Madagascar, it is a it is a land, it is a region that is prone to drought. Every decade or so, uh, there is extreme drought. And so is the drought that we're seeing now uh, a consequence of global climate change, or is it simply... Uh, an episodic, unpredictable uh, period when conditions dry 
uh, driven by microclimate changes. Um, there isn't an answer to that question, uh, but I think it's uh, you know it's it is you know it's fair to say that uh, uh, you know what you know it's probably it's some of both. It's some of both. And that drought, uh, that drought is becoming going to become more common in the south. Whether it will be habitable for people uh, 20, 30 years out, I think uh, uh, is sort of questionable. And what is happening now is that people uh, in the current drought they're moving north, and uh, they are moving into forests up the west coast, and. Uh, you know, they have no option. They have to feed their families. And so forests, they're clearing forests, create fields to plant maize to be able to feed their families. So there is a kind of the, the environmental catastrophe is not only about malnutrition and suffering in the South itself, uh, but there is sort of a different kind of environmental impact that is taking place up in the West. Um, with respect to the wildlife, uh, with my colleagues in Madagascar, we're very focused on where corridors of forest remain that will link these southern areas uh, up into uh, more northerly areas so that uh, uh, animals or some species have a chance to, uh, to disperse northward, uh, you know, you know, Possibly temporarily, it's it's happened before. It happened two thousand five hundred years ago in the in the in the southwest. There was a dry spell, and lots of animals uh, disappeared. You know, water preferring you know animals that, that that are not drought resistant. They moved they moved north, uh, but they didn't go extinct island wide. They moved, and so you know part of the hope for the future is ensuring that there is enough. There are enough natural connections between uh, you know, large blocks of forests and uh, endemic grassland to allow you know, much, if not all of the wildlife uh, to have a future. But it's, you know, it's hard, it's hard. There's no, there's no question about it. And uh, there's a chapter in my book, as you know, that talks about sort of the, you know, the unfolding disasters. I'm, I, I'm no Pollyanna on this, uh, it's, you know, the, 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 this, as, as with so many places in the world, the, you know, there is much to, there's much to despair about. That's just the reality. But uh, as I said, despair is not an option. So we went. And what discoveries in your journey to writing your book, The Sloth Lemur Song, surprised you the most? Oh, that's an interesting question. I uh, I don't I, I don't have an answer to that. I think um, because you know it, it it I mean what I would say rather is it, it was just it's been a marvelous journey. Um, and if I have uh, a problem now. It's kind of the book equivalent of postpartum depression, right? It was, it was such a, it was a, it was such a, uh, uh, an, a riveting experience. I was discovering so much that made me wonder and delighted me, and and now my book is over, right? <laughs> so so there's this kind of you know 
question that, you know, okay, so now what? Now what am I going to do? What am I going to be when I grow up? You know, that's the sort of question that I'm, 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 I'm thinking about uh, at the moment. And I have ideas, um, but, 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 you know, for the immediate future, uh, what I want is, uh, is to do my best. And this conversation is part of that, is to do my best to ensure that this book reaches the widest possible audience. And that's not to promote myself. Uh, I'm not actually, I've never been interested in that. That's just not what I kind of care about. Uh, and it's not sort of just to sell books. Uh, uh, but it's because it's such an amazing place. It's such a magical place. And I believe that there are lessons to be learned. Uh, the book, you know, the book does have a message. And, and it is a message for me about uh, the, the, the power of stories and of sharing our different stories with one another. Because if we're going to create uh, a future uh, we have to learn to listen to each other's stories, listen to the kinds, different kinds of evidence that we all bring to the table. The evidence I bring to the table is scientific evidence, but that evidence is not accessible to most people living in Madagascar. But their evidence is the evidence of lived experience on the land. Uh, and that's uh, just as important. And, uh, and, and sort of finding common ground between what we Western scientists, Malagasy scientists know and understand, and what people living in rural areas know and understand and their interpretations of the world, finding common ground between them. That is the platform, that's the springboard for a viable future. So, uh, so anyway, so, so, so I want, I, so yeah, so I want, I, I, I'd like to find readers for this book. I mean, there are the usual suspects. There are the people who already know about and care about Madagascar. And I hope and trust, and many of them are my friends, and I hope and trust that they will buy my book and read it. And, 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 and many already are. But it's everybody else. It's everybody else that I would really love to engage. So, um, so that's what I'm doing for now. And then I will decide what to do next, uh, you know, soon, <laughs> so, but not today. Um, so is anyway. Madagascar your happy place? Yes, 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 yes. And I, I mean, in fact, I will be there. Uh, I haven't been in Madagascar since the summer of 2019 because of COVID. Uh, and I'm experiencing severe withdrawal symptoms. I can't wait to go. It's like a second or third home to me. You know, the UK is my home. The US is my home. Madagascar is also my home and my family. You know, we have dear Malagasy friends there and, uh, you know, and I love the place. And so it's just awful not to have been there. I've been in Madagascar every year since 1974 for weeks or months, uh, except the years uh, in which I was having children. Um, so kind of not to be there for two and a half years is really dire. So I, I have a plane ticket for the 5th of August, and I will be back there for a month, and I'm counting the days. That's something else that I'm doing at the moment. I was wondering if you would also like to try the extinct lemur as a, as a dish. Oh, no, 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 never, never, no. When I'm in Madagascar, what I eat is rice three times a day uh, oh. uh, with the occasional chicken. Uh, but, uh, you know, no, 
absolutely not. Excellent. Well, this has been a truly fascinating and inspiring discussion. So you already said that um, you're going to Madagascar in August, hopefully. And what's your next project for the book, for example? Well, I mean, as I said, I mean, sort of trying to sort of talking about the book to anybody who will listen to me is uh, uh, is sort of what I'm doing at the moment. You know what? I mean, I, I would, you know, the, writing this book has been an anchor in my life, uh, and I love it. Uh, the writing, and also, as I say, it's the first time I've written for a general reader, and I've really enjoyed doing that. It's a different kind of thing. So, what might I write about next? Well, I one of the one of the things that I've sort of got caught up in in recent years over there is working with women and it's only women who produce salt from the soil in southwest Madagascar uh, it's called siratani salt of the earth and it is literally salt of the earth it is a very strenuous and lengthy process to extract the salt from salty soils in the southwest Madaga this part of Madagascar having been under the ocean for millions of years millions of years ago Anyway, they do that and they sell it in local markets after huge amounts of uh, labor for, you know, one or two pennies a kilo. Uh, and so I have been working with them, uh, looking for new markets uh, uh, for their salt. So you're talking to someone who has uh, exported a half ton of Siratani to the United Kingdom, where it is being, where it's being marketed by Steamberg Spices as a high-end sort of, you know, gourmet salt. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I mean, at this point, that was, I, this happened just before COVID as a kind of first effort to find new markets and a better living for these women. Um, no, I, I, at this point, I really question whether, you know, using fossil fuels to ship a very heavy uh, substance halfway around the world to market it in uh, a place that has plenty of salt already, thank you very much, is actually a very good idea. But, but, but this salt, Siratani, it's interesting because it is low in sodium and high in potassium. So it is a healthful salt. And in Madagascar, MDs in the capital, doctors in the capital, actually prescribe it to people with hypertension. And there's a lot of hypertension in Madagascar because of its low sodium content. So uh, maybe there is uh, a market to be developed, a domestic market to be developed more fully and to plug these women into uh, in Madagascar itself. Or maybe, you know, people now put salt into chocolate. So maybe there's another niche for this salt. Uh, but anyway, it, it's, it's a whole new adventure for me. If we can make this work, um, then maybe there is another book about Siritani and very interestingly to me about what is the place for uh, private enterprise, for private endeavors in the conservation arena? Because I have friends who say to me, friends, good friends, uh, in uh, the, the conservation world who say to me, no, conservation is about the public good. And what you're doing is just going to make, uh, a, you know, groups of women, the women form themselves into association. It's just going to make groups of women richer. Uh, and that's not what conservation is about. 
it's it, it's you know it's I don't agree I don't agree uh, but I haven't articulated in my own mind fully why I don't agree and why I think there is a place in this broader community-based community-led conservation action on the ground for you know working working with women on Suratani. Um, so you know it, 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 I would love to think that there is sort of something that will come out of this at some point as a book. Um, but it, but I can't write a book about a failure. So I have to make I have to make this work. And besides, the women at the moment are quite pissed off at me, I gather, because I have not sort of, you know, I haven't been finding more further markets for them. I work on, I needed to say, all of this is with my good friends and colleagues, Joali Sua, Rad Sirasan, and Jonan Ranivanasi at the University of Antananarivu, and with the whole community down in the Southwest. So it's not, this is not me alone. This is, uh, it's, it's, it's a collective effort. But, uh, Anyway, uh, you know, the, the, the pressure is on. So a, a piece of what I will be doing this summer, apart from just picking up the threads of shared lives with so many good friends, is sort of putting our heads together to think about next steps on this, uh, on this Suratani project. We'll see. Who knows? It's all. In, I've never known what I was going to do next is the truth of the matter. <laughs> so, you know, I don't know. Um, but anyway. Well, that's that sounds super exciting. Well, we'll see. We'll see. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.